All right, if you have a Bible, open it up to Isaiah chapter 40. Um, like I said a minute ago, we're going to be jumping back into Genesis next week. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, if you have one of the welcome table Bibles, it's on page 635. Um, we've been in Genesis for a while now, and it was just four months ago, four months ago, that we paused in Genesis uh, to address uh, 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 some things that, that happened to, to be encouraged uh, from God's word in 2 Corinthians four months ago as we mourned the loss of our sister, Rebecca. And, and, and now we mourn the loss of Leo, one of our dear brothers in the Lord, and we mourn the loss of Ernestine, the mother of one of our sisters in the Lord, and Ernestine herself being a sister in the Lord. And while Rebecca and Leo and Ernestine are now with our Lord in the perfection of eternity, we stay here. We stay here in the brokenness of our present world, longing. I don't know about you, but I, I have this longing, longing for the day that, that we'll all be together with the Lord in the perfection of eternity. I'm so grateful that our Lord does not merely wait for us there, but he remains with us here through his Holy Spirit who dwells in us and gives us the endurance that we need while we wait for Christ's bodily return. He's coming back. Are you growing weary of waiting? Are you brokenhearted over loss, confused or overwhelmed by the hardships that you're facing? Are you wondering if God is doing anything about it or if he's even paying attention? Then I want you to listen carefully to the words of Isaiah 40 this morning because there's great comfort to be found here for all of God's people. And before we open it up together, I want to pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lead us this morning in the pathway of peace and comfort in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I think I, think I could speak for all of us when I say that life is really not comfortable right now. But as followers of Christ, we should not be surprised by that. The discomforts of this life are meant, they're purposeful. They're meant to, to expose the futility of trusting in anything other than God for our peace, our rest, and our ultimate satisfaction. God himself, the sovereign ruler of all things, he allows our lives to be uncomfortable here so that we never settle for temporary things and we seek true comfort in the only place that it can be found, in the mighty and the gentle arms of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's our thought for this morning. Here's the thing that I want us to just hold on to. God comforts those who trust him. So if you're looking for comfort, you must look to him. God comforts those who trust in him. So if you're looking for comfort, you must look to him. Isaiah 40 sets our gaze upon the Lord and it reminds us of his trustworthiness. And the first reminder that we see is that God will rescue his people from exile. Look with me at Isaiah 40, verses one and two. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand 
double for all of her sins. These words are like a cool rush of water to a parched throat. For 39 chapters in Isaiah, the words that Isaiah spoke to the people were not tender words. They were words of warning and judgment to a disobedient people on a slippery, a slippery slope going downward. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem after Israel had divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was the capital city. Isaiah's prophetic message was directed at the leaders of Jerusalem and, and this southern kingdom of Judah shortly before the northern kingdom of Israel was invaded and conquered and exiled by the Assyrian army in 722 B.C. Isaiah warned Judah's leaders about Israel's rebellion. He's like, look at these guys, they're going down. Be careful. And he told Judah that they too would be judged if they continued in rebellion against the Lord, if they, if they mingled with idols and, and, and idol worshipers, and they relied on themselves. Intermixed with these warnings were hints of hope that God would preserve a faithful remnant of, of people and forgive them of their sin and that he would send to them a perfect king who would save them, who would conquer their enemies, who would establish God's kingdom on earth in a new Jerusalem and bring blessing to the nations. But these were just hints in a steady flow of warnings. All those hints of hope get filled out in more detail in the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, but the predominant message of the first 39 chapters, everything up until the words I just read, it's warning the people of exile. It's warning the people of Judah that exile is coming unless they repent and return to the Lord. Hezekiah became king of Judah, and it looked as though they, they would heed Isaiah's warnings. About eight years after Assyria conquered and exiled the northern kingdom of Israel, Assyria's king came and attacked the fortified cities of the southern kingdom of Judah and then set his eyes on Jerusalem, the capital city. Hezekiah humbled himself before the Lord and he trusted the Lord for deliverance instead of looking to other nations like Egypt for help. And, and the Lord saved Judah from the Assyrian army, from the invasion but over time, if you read Isaiah 38, 39, Hezekiah grew prideful. He tried to form an alliance with the king of Babylon. Isaiah warned Hezekiah that Babylon would eventually betray Judah and conquer and destroy Jerusalem. And those are the words that close out Genesis, or Genesis, Isaiah chapter 39. These opening words of chapter 40 look about 200 years into the future to the end of Judah's exile of Babylon. What Isaiah warned would happen, happened. They were taken captive. They were exiled from the land. These are words of consolation. They're words of comfort that the Lord has not abandoned his people. He says, comfort my people, says your God. He has not distanced himself from them. He says, speak tenderly to them, literally speak to their heart. God is offering his people reassurance in the midst of their fear and uncertainty. He reminds them that their penalty for their rebellion has been paid and their sins are forgiven. Is that not also a message of comfort for us as God's people? If we could summarize these last two years with a couple of words, I think fear and uncertainty would be high on the list. I doubt that comfort would even make the cut. 
But living in a culture that's driven by ease and comfort makes it tempting for us to want to cozy up to the things that culture depends on to make this life better. And it's easy for us to forget that we live here, Scripture tells us, as strangers and exiles, sojourners, just traveling through, awaiting a better homeland, a heavenly city. And so God, in his grace, in his divine providence, he allows us to experience discomfort and dissatisfaction with earthly things so that we can learn what it means not just to have earthly comfort that fades, but to be content in him during our pilgrimage in this life. And our contentment comes from resting in this glorious reality that our iniquity has been pardoned. We sang that this morning. And Christ has received from the Father's hand double for all of our sins, and and we are forgiven forever. We're no longer exiled from God as his enemies. We are now strangers in the world. Sometimes our hardships, though, can make it feel like God is punishing us for something, right? That's why it's important for us to constantly be reminded of God's faithfulness to his people and to remind each other of God's faithfulness to us. The more we see his faithfulness, the more we'll be comforted by it, and the more we'll trust him. Isaiah's promise is that God will rescue his people from exile as strangers and exiles living in a foreign land. We can take great comfort in that promise because God is our everlasting shepherd king. Look at verse 3. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will be smooth and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice was saying, cry out. Another, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, The people are grass. The grass withers. The flowers fade. But the word of the Lord, our God, remains forever. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. This is a very vocal passage. There's a lot of crying out going on in these verses. Before a king entered a city, a herald would go before him, would go on ahead of him and make the people ready for his arrival. This is the picture that we see in verses 3 through 5. The mention of the wilderness and the desert in verse 3 was this reminder of Israel's history, their wanderings in the desert after God brought them out of Egypt and they disobeyed him. In Isaiah chapter 64, the prophet said that Jerusalem and the other cities of Judah had become a wilderness of ruin because of the people's iniquity. Jerusalem was surrounded by valleys and mountains, uneven ground and rough places. To make these places level and smooth was this metaphor for the repentance that was needed for the exiles to return from captivity and to prepare the people 
for the coming of a promised king. But verse 5 points us to something that's far greater than the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. And it would be important not just for the people of Judah, but for everyone. All humanity together will see the glory of the Lord appear. What is that glory? John 1.14 tells us this event has already happened. He says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All four Gospels tell us that John the Baptist came as a herald of Christ, quoting these verses from Isaiah and preparing the people for the king's arrival. But in order for all humanity to recognize Christ as the true king of an eternal kingdom, we first have to recognize our own frailty. And so another voice cries out here in verse 6 through 8 to make our frailty abundantly clear. All humanity is grass. And its goodness is like a flower in the field. Just as the grass withers, so does humanity. Just as the flower fades, so does humanity's goodness. Hezekiah started off as a humble king. He's spoken of well in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. He was reliant upon the Lord, but he got greedy. And his goodness faded, and he began to look for peace and security in another human king instead of the Lord God. Hezekiah didn't last as king of Judah, and his kingdom withered just as he did. But we don't need to look to Hezekiah to know that our lives are fleeting. If we, if we took this reality for granted before 2020, the last two years have made this ab- abundantly clear. It's also clear that our peace and our security will never be found in words of assurance from those who are fleeting themselves. Our peace and our security is only found in the word of our God that remains forever. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord remains. In 1 Peter, the apostle quotes these verses from Isaiah to show that we are born again into eternal life through the living and enduring word of God. And that word, the word of the Lord that remains forever, is the gospel that was proclaimed to us. The words of humanity are unreliable because the lives of humanity are fleeting. But the word of our God is always reliable because Jesus himself is the living word, the word made flesh, and he remains forever. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's word of hope that gives life to all who hear it and believe it. Life that will not wither. Life that will not fade. As we continue to experience the hard reality that all humanity is like withering grass, we must rely on the unfading goodness of the gospel for true comfort and hope. And we must offer God's enduring word of true hope to others rather than our own fleeting words of superficial comfort. We must be heralds of this good news that points people to God. What is this good news? Jesus came in the frailty and the weakness of human flesh. He endured suffering and oppression from earthly kings and leaders. He was shamefully mocked and scorned by wicked humanity while he received the righteous judgment and wrath from God the Father on our behalf. And his final breath faded like a flower. Our Redeemer died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. 
His withered body was placed in a tomb. But after three days, the living and enduring word of God rose from the grave in triumph over death to bring lasting hope, real comfort, true eternal life to all who recognize their own frailty and put their trust in him. This is good news. Jesus is the warrior king described here in verse 10. He came with the strength and power and established his rule over sin and death. How? By becoming weak. By humbling himself and submitting himself to the persecution of those who thought that their own rule was established. Jesus is also the good shepherd described here in verse 11. His arm is strong against his enemies, but listen, his arm is gentle for his sheep. John chapter 10 would be a great chapter for you to meditate on this week. Do you feel vulnerable and helpless? Jesus protects his flock like a good shepherd. Do you feel isolated or alone? He gathers his lambs in his arms and he carries them in the fold of his garment. Do you feel lost, looking for spiritual nourishment? He gently leads those that are nursing. The God who spoke tenderly to Jerusalem through the prophet Isaiah is the good shepherd who deals gently with all of his sheep. There's no comfort that he cannot provide, and the comfort that he provides never lacks in any way. He has established his rule in strength and power. He will judge his enemies and reward his people. There's no greater truth for us to herald than these things. No better salve for our circumstantial wounds. No sweeter medicine for the bitterness of this life. No greater comfort for our troubled hearts. And all of this is true because God is like no other. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on the scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who gave him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? These verses ask us, it's all questions, but they can be grouped into two rhetorical questions that we have to answer. Who created the universe and who counseled the creator? And these questions bring us really quickly to the answer. It's not you, and it's not me. Verse 12 covers the whole of creation. Did you see that? The waters, the heavens, and the land, the earth. Cup your hands together for a second. Can all the water of the earth fit in there? I have a 24-ounce water bottle up here. I can't even hold that in my hands. Take your hand and and stretch it out like this. The span of your hand, what Isaiah says here, the span of your hand is from the, the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky going across the palm of your hand. Can you measure the heavens with that? I can't even stretch mine across the table in front of me. You ever tried lifting a mountain? 
I can't even do a pull-up. I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> How could I even begin to measure the entire landmass on this planet? And yet, this is the reality. None of this is even remotely difficult for the God who created all of it. None of it. He is completely unmatched in his power. How about wisdom and knowledge? Were you there at the beginning to give God some tips on what to create and how to create it? Has God ever come to you for advice? Does God study your word to know you? I've told you before that I like to bird watch. And over the last several weeks, there's been this snowy owl spotted in, uh, in the Gridley area. And I know this because I get email updates that alert me if a rare bird is sighted around the area, okay? I'm a bird nerd. I have yet to check that snowy owl off my list. I have not seen it. I've been out several times looking for it with no luck. I have to rely on this information that comes to me from others a day after they've seen it. By the time that information comes to me, and even if I can get out there, chances are that bird's flown somewhere else before I get to where it was last seen. I'm also looking for an all-white bird that's about two feet tall, which is fairly large for a bird, but it loves to sit on the ground in wide open spaces. Have you seen the ground lately? It's all white. There's a good chance that I've driven right past this bird and have not seen it. And that checkbox is still empty for me. And yet Matthew's gospel tells us, hear this, not even a four-inch sparrow falls to the ground without the Lord's consent. Not just with his knowledge, but without his consent. I have no knowledge to offer the one who knows all things. I have no counsel to give the great counselor. He is completely unmatched in his understanding. God alone is the creator of all things, and he created all things according to his own power and wisdom. He does not fear what you fear he is not surprised by what surprises you. He's never left wondering what to do next or where to go from here. He's never been shaken by something outside of his control or left confused by something beyond his comprehension. He's not blindsided by anyone or anything. He's never had to wait and wonder. He has no what ifs. He never has to look for reason, the reason why something has happened. He's never left in the dark because he is light. He is always Always, always in control over all things. My situations, your situations, all situations at all times for our good and his glory. Look at verse 15. Look. The nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon's cedars are not enough for fuel or its animals enough for a burnt offering. 
All the nations are as nothing before him, and they are considered by him as empty nothingness. I told you the word of God is honest. Do you think the Israelites needed this reminder when they were conquered by Assyria and Babylon and exiled from their own land? What about after they returned under the order of Cyrus, the king of Persia, but remained under his rule? Or then the Medes after that, King Darius? Or how about when they were under the, the rule of Rome in Jesus' day? Israel's God did not abandon them to these nations. And although these nations were world powers in their day, none of the world powers in all of history will stand up to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords when he comes to judge the earth. Lebanon was known at that time for its unrivaled forests and its unmatched diversity of animals, and yet all of its cedars would be insufficient to kindle the fire on God's altar. And all of its animals would be not enough to, uh, to, to give a sacrifice that's worthy of the Lord. This is the magnitude of our God. Take every world power across all of history, put them all together, and God says there's still empty nothingness. Empty nothingness before him. Now, that reality should humble us as citizens of one of the most powerful nations in the world. It should also keep us from anchoring our security to our nation's power. It should also comfort and encourage us as citizens of heaven, living as strangers and exiles in a foreign land. No nation, no matter how powerful it gets, will overcome Christ's church. Not even the gates of Hades, Jesus says, will be able to overcome it. No matter how powerful that nation is, no matter how strong its influence is, no matter how severe its persecution gets. There's comfort in these words. Look at verse 18. With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? An idol? Something that a smelter casts? And a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver chains for? A poor person contributes wood for a pedestal that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. Nations are nothing. That's pretty clear from the last verses. Idols are nothing. It's pretty clear from these verses. An idol is a creation. It's not a creator. Even the most skilled craftsmen that, that use all the resources uh, known to them, they have to use resources that they themselves have not made. Gold. Metal. They're borrowing from God, the one true creator. And they're making an idol so that they can worship it as God. An idol that fell over showed that the God it represented had no power. It was humiliating to this so-called God and to the people who made the idol and worshipped it. And so to prevent that humiliation, a craftsman would secure the idol to a base with a metal rod and nails so that it wouldn't fall over. A statue needs human intervention to keep it from toppling over. But our God topples nations and kingdoms. The idols that we create today, probably none of us have statues in our living room. The idols that we create are no longer physical statues, but they're just as powerless to provide the stability that only the one who laid the earth's foundation can give to us. 
because that foundation will not be shaken until he shakes it. Look at verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has, not, has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them, and they wither, and a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. Nations are nothing. Idols are nothing. Princes are nothing. What human throne on the earth can compare to God's throne above it? The earth is the Lord's footstool. We're told that in other places in Scripture because he created it. He rules everything in it. The glory of kings and rulers and leaders in, is short-lived because all humanity is grass that withers. A person who tries to make a name for himself does so in vain because reputation that reputation barely gets established before it's carried away like stubble by the breath of the Lord's mouth. But the one who uses his life to exalt the name of the Lord will find that his labor is not in vain. Listen to the language similar in Psalm 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and in the enduring word of God. And he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. God rules the rulers and judges the judges. His throne is above all thrones, and his court is the highest court. Look at verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, asks the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. He brings out all the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Jacob, why do you say, in Israel, why do you assert, my way is hidden from the Lord and my claim is ignored by my God? Remember back in Genesis 15 when God brought Abraham outside? He said, hey, look up. Try to count the stars if you're able to. Your offspring will be that many. Abraham couldn't do it. The ESV Study Bible has a fascinating footnote here in verse 26 in Isaiah 40. In ancient Israel, about around 5,000 stars were visible at night to the naked eye. Now, like we just launched this telescope thing, the Webb telescope. It's like supposed to see, I don't know, forever. Our advanced technology, right now, currently, astronomers estimate that there are over 400 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. Okay, tally that one. And there are at least 125 billion galaxies in the universe. 
Anybody got the math? That's 10 billion with a B, trillion with a T, stars. That's a trillion stars 10 billion times. Because of his strength and power, not one of them is missing. Not one of them. I thought the sparrow falling to the ground thing was impressive. Psalm 147, 4 and 5. He counts the number of the stars. And he gives names to all of them. Our Lord is great. He's vast in power. His understanding is infinite. This isn't hyperbole. These aren't superlatives. These are realities when we're talking about our God. Psalm 8, 3 and 4. When I observe your heavens, God, when I go outside and I look up, when I observe the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you would remember him? Son of man, that you look after him. The God who knows all 10 billion trillion stars by name is the God who knows Leo by name. the God who knows Rebecca by name and Ernestine and you and me. How much more does he care about us than he does the stars that he so carefully put in place and calls each one by name? Hear me. There is no pain that you carry that is unknown to your God. He understands your sorrow. He sees your suffering. Your way is not hidden from him. Your cries for mercy and justice are not ignored by him. Are you weary? Are you tired of crying out? Don't stop. Don't stop. He is your help because God never grows weary. Look at verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. The earth has a beginning and it will have an end. We have a beginning and we will have an end. But the one who created the earth and everything in it has no beginning. And he has no end. He is the everlasting God, the God of eternity, the infinite one. Just take two seconds and try to comprehend all of the complexities of the universe while at the same time managing all of the circumstances of all of the people from all of history. We could spend our entire lives attempting to do this, but we'll end up frustrated after two seconds because we can't even understand or control our own circumstances, let alone anyone else, let alone Contemplate the complexities of the cosmos. There's no limit to God's understanding. 
no limit, no breaking point to his power. He never becomes faint or weary. No, he gives strength to the faint and the powerless, and he gives understanding to the overwhelmed and the confused, he, and he does so without ever draining even one single ounce of his own power and wisdom. He's got plenty to spare for you and for me. Verse 30 pictures the pinnacle of human strength. But even youths in all their vigor become faint and weary. Even young men in all their vitality stumble and fall like an unstable idol. This is why we'll never be able to just grit our teeth and power our way through our trials. It's only when we stop relying on ourselves and we look to the Lord that we find the strength that we need. And it's not, it's not physical strength necessarily to, to toughen us up. It's spiritual strength, strengthening of the soul to help us endure with hope in the midst of our weakness. Those of us who trust in the Lord will not renew our own strength. We will receive new strength that comes only from God, the Lord in whom we trust. He will not be a whirlwind that carries us away like stubble. He'll be a, a mighty current that lifts us up and carries us onward with the endurance of an eagle. He'll enable us to run the race of life and make it to the finish line. He'll empower us to walk by faith and persevere even when we can't see. Listen, we're only a week into 2022. And it already feels like this year has given us more than we can bear. If we're going to endure whatever else comes our way this year or in the years to come, we need a big view of our sovereign God. And there are few places in all of Scripture that offer us a bigger picture, a bigger view of our God than Isaiah chapter 40. Go there often. This God of ours, in all his grandeur, cares about the smallest details of our lives and he rules over every last one of them comfort comfort my people says your god today i get to comfort you with isaiah's words but tomorrow i might need you to comfort me or two days from now or six weeks from now or 10 years from now We've got to continue to comfort one another, not with superficial things, but with the comfort that we have been given through God, through his son, through his enduring word, and through his indwelling spirit. God comforts those who trust in him. So if you're looking for comfort, you must look to him. God allows our lives to be uncomfortable here so that we will never settle for temporary things and we seek and, and we will see, seek true comfort in the only place that it can be found. In the strong arm and the gentle arm of our shepherd king and our savior. May we never rely on our own frail delusions of strength and understanding, but instead, church, let us be renewed by his power and comforted by his wisdom so that we can endure together with real hope. We don't just trod through this life. There's joy to be had. 
but we do it together until the glory of our Lord appears again, once and for all, when Christ himself returns in strength and power and consummates his kingdom rule forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we would have no hope without your enduring word. And we thank you that because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, what we have just seen and heard will never change. Comfort your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.